It was the winter of 2003. It had been a very celebrative week. It had been a very seemingly fruitful week. It had been a very humbling week. It had been a very tiring week in West Africa. It was our last day there. It was a Sunday morning. We were leaving that evening and there was one final task left. And it was the preaching of God's Word in the church that Pastor Wisdom O'Kansey led. We're together in corporate worship, and I'm finding myself to be a little distracted. Distracted with thoughts of how it is I'm going to serve these people through the Word. So I'm distracted with thoughts of them. Distracted with thoughts of home. Distracted with thoughts of a long flight, seeing my family, just distracted. It's one of those moments where I'm I'm just distracted. And in my distraction, I notice a woman coming from the back of the church to the front to my left. And this is a memory that is vivid and clear and colorful and full of emotion. It's real. I'm not looking at a picture trying to retrieve information. I'm I'm playing the video in my mind, and I see this woman coming forward. And she's not dressed in the typical African garb or dress that you might imagine. We're in Western Africa, which is, in a sense, very westernized. So I see this woman walking forward, humbly, reverently, elegantly. She has a long, dark blue skirt, falls below her knee, Dark blue high heels, same color. She's wearing a long sleeve button up shirt, vertical blue and white stripes. She makes her way to the front of the church and in front of this congregation of people, she kneels down and she raises her hands up to the Lord and sings one of the most beautiful songs that I've ever heard but didn't understand. (laughs) in her native tongue. And it was a beautiful, one of the most beautiful experiences that I've been a part of in relation to a person and their God. And for even just a brief moment, it was as if I had a glimpse of what it could have been like when the woman approached Jesus and she knelt down at His feet and wet his feet with her tears, wiped his feet with her hair, and poured perfume on his feet from her alabaster vial of perfume that radiated a fragrance throughout the whole room as she worshipped without any type of inhibition whatsoever. The lesson that I learned, because I want to be very clear of what, what I don't mean here. I know that worship is a matter of the heart. Therefore, it's probably not very fair. As a matter of fact, I want to suggest it's not fair at all to gauge worship worship based on external responses or external postures. But the lesson that I learned that, that day, I've still taken with me to this day. And the lesson is simply this. There was a time when I was distracted from worship to God. In that moment when I was distracted 
away from God, there was a person who was distracted by thoughts of God. And it moved her to worship in a way that I was extremely envious of. And that's a lesson that I carry with me today. And I believe that God doesn't want us to just grasp that lesson for moments like this. I believe that God wants us to grasp that lesson for the sake of the life that we live. Our very lives, not just moments, but our very lives. Let's, if we can, explore that idea by opening our Bibles to John chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, noontime. A woman from Samaria came to draw water Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning, God, and we would ask, as we as we make an attempt this morning, Lord, to open the door of worship, God, we would ask for help. We would ask for illumination. We would ask for revelation. We would ask for clarity. And we would ask that, God, You would help us to be a people who worship. 
with our lives, in our lives, through our lives, in this place, in our workplace, in our homes. So God, we would ask that if there is brokenness, You would bring healing, Lord. If there is anger, God, would You bring peace into our lives? If there is anxiety, would You bring patience? If there is lust, would You bring purity? God, would You confront our sin? Would You show us how to help each other worship You? As we function in this thing called the church. We need clarity this morning, God. And that's what we're asking for. In Jesus' name, Amen. Wow, this passage is so full of life. I want to try to draw briefly a couple of principles. And the principles that I want to draw this morning is number one, the purpose of salvation. And number two, the possibility of spiritual sight. But I want to make something clear. Both of those principles fall under the banner of the role of the Spirit in worship. We've been introduced to the Spirit in a few different ways in a few different passages. We've been introduced to the role of the Spirit in John chapter 3 when Jesus says you must be born again and then tells us how you must be born of the water and the Spirit. We're introduced to that same idea in this chapter when Jesus says, listen, if you want to be a person that truly worships with your life, you have to be engaged with your spirit. We can't talk about things like salvation. We can't talk about things like revelation or spiritual sight without talking about the role of the Holy Spirit of God. So I pray this morning that we would just open up a door. And then prayerfully over the next two weeks, we'll open that door a little wider each time we meet and talk about this beautiful passage of Scripture that we can identify with, so many of us. Let's talk about the purpose of our salvation. Let's reread verses 1 through 7. The role of the Spirit in the purpose of our salvation. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And He had to pass through Samaria. So He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as He was from His journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Things seem very black and white. Things seem very forthright. Things seem very obvious. Except for the fact that we're told in verse 4, that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, most of us are oriented to the reality that that's not exactly true geographically. That's why I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Judea, Samaria, Galilee. 
So for a Jew, specifically a devout Jew, what they would typically do, they would cross the Jordan River, they would travel north, they would cross the Jordan River again to enter into Galilee to bypass Samaria altogether. So when this passage of Scripture tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, it seems as if there is a driving force behind what it is that He has to do. It seems to be that there is a driving force behind the fact that He had to pass through Samaria. And I think it is only right, I think it is only biblical to take verse 23 and to bring it into this picture that's before us. Verse 23 of chapter 4 says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Why? For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Why are we saved? Good deeds, good works, bear fruit. Absolutely. As a priority, even those things are founded that we're called to be a people that worship Him. See, verse 23, the reason we have to pull it into this picture before us is because verse 23 is the foundation for this whole encounter with the woman at the well. As a matter of fact, verse 23 is the foundation for so many things that we have read thus far. John 3.16 reminds us that it was the joy of God to set His love on people from different nations, different tribes, and different tongues. We learned prayerfully last week that it was the joy of John the Baptist to witness God placing and setting His love on different people. It was His joy to witness it, and it was His joy to be a part of it. And this passage, in this passage, we see Jesus Christ putting hands and feet on that joy. The foundation of the joy that we see thus far is found in the fact that God is developing a mass group of worshipers. A mass group of people that live their lives exalting Christ with their very lives. I remember the very first Promise Keepers convention that I ever went to. It was during an intermission. There began to be a large group of men on one end of the stadium, and they began to verbally shout out this little chant, and it went like this. We love God. Yes, we do. We love God. You probably know the rest. How about you? So there began to be this verbal chant that took place from one end of the stadium to the other end of the stadium, from one side of the stadium to the other side of the stadium in relation to how much these people, these groups of people, love Jesus. I believe that is but a small glimpse and a small picture of what God's intention of salvation is. And it's not... The intention of salvation isn't seen from one end of the stadium to the other end of the stadium. It's an intention that is seen from one end of the world to the other end of the world. We're gathered here today and we will cry out to God, God, how great 
you are. How great is our God. And while we're crying out how great is our God, people in Africa are crying out worthy is the Lamb. People in China are crying out holy, holy, holy. People in Russia are crying out their version of amazing grace. God has established salvation for the sake of gathering and building a mass group of worshipers on a worldwide scale. But what does that even mean? Does that mean that it's confined to moments such as this? We need to be very clear from the outset, lest we think that worship is confined in this, to this context only. We need to be careful that we would never think that worship is designated to this moment or moments like this. We need to be careful that we would never think that worship is for the context of a Sunday morning or a church gathering in any context rather than what it really is intended to be. Worship is tended to be a lifestyle and the Father is seeking those people that will commit to live that life. And I want to suggest this morning that we see that passion in the person of Jesus Christ when He says something as simple as, give me a drink. He's the Lord of all. He's the Creator of all. He's the Lord of the oceans, the rivers, the streams, the waterfalls, the wells, the rain. And yet the Creator bends down to the creature and says, You give me a drink. You give to me. Is Christ human? Yes. Fully human, fully God. Is this a representation of the length of His effort? to reach out to fallen humanity? Yes, of course it is. But listen, beloved, may we not be too quick or too hasty to think that His request to give me a drink is confined to human desire only. There will come a time when Jesus will look at His disciples. Probably He's hungry. But the time will come when He will look at His disciples and He'll say, listen, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So in Christ's request, give me a drink, I want to suggest that that is what the heart of Christian worship really is. I want to suggest that what Christ says in verse 23, these are the people that God is seeking, that is revealing the purpose of our salvation. We are brought into salvation for the purpose of being true worshipers of God. And being a true worshiper of God, listen, beloved, being a true worshiper of God is not about primarily Christ satisfying me. Being a true worshiper of God is primarily about me bringing satisfaction to Christ. Therefore, He rightly says, You give to me. You satisfy me. But we have to, we have to try to unpack this process a little bit more. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Do we worship because we're born again? Sure. 
Sure, we worship because we're born again. But what it seems like this passage is saying, based upon what Jesus had to do, it seems like this passage may be suggesting that we're caused to be born again by the Spirit so that we will become worshipers. So the question before us is, which is it really? I mean, really, are we born again primarily to be the recipients of something? Or are we born again primarily to bring to God something? Which is it? What is the purpose of our redemption? C.S. Lewis struggled greatly with the idea that God demanded worship. Struggled with the fact that God demanded it from His people. Almost to the point that his thought process was, is God an egomaniac? Well, this is what he said. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and His worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. Praise Him. Worse still was the statement put into God's own mouth. Whosoever, whosoever offers me thanks and praise, He honors me. It was hideously like saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and that I am great. It was extremely distressing. It made one think what one least wanted to think. Gratitude to God, reverence to Him, and obedience to Him, I thought I could understand, but not this perpetual eulogy. Is God an egomaniac? Maybe we can find ourselves a little conflicted as well when our perspective of this passage begins to shift a little bit. It's very, or it seems very noble. It seems very heroic to think that Christ looks into the place of Samaria and He sees a damsel in distress. And for her sake, and for her cause, he runs to deliver her from the abuse of men and the gossip of women. So he arrives like a knight in shining armor to deliver her. That all sounds beautiful, it's poetic, it's noble, and all of the above. But when we think that he had to pass through Samaria to deliver this woman, not primarily for her sake, but primarily for his sake, and primarily for His glory, that has the tendency and the temptation to change our perspective a little bit. Who is God? What is it that He's seeking? What is the purpose of Him redeeming her? Is He out to rescue her? 
or is he out to fulfill something going on within himself? C.S. Lewis finishes his statement by saying this. It is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates His presence to men. I want to repeat that and then I'll move on. It's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates His presence to men. It is not, of course, the only way, but for many people, at many times, the fair beauty of the Lord is revealed chiefly or only while they worship Him together. Even in Judaism, the essence of the sacrifice was not really that men gave bulls and goats to God, but that by their doing so, God gave Himself to men. In salvation, in redemption, there is something very grand. There is something very beautiful. There is something very heavenly. There is something very holy that is taking place as God reveals Himself to men through the Holy Spirit. And I believe they go hand in hand. Is God consumed with His own praise? Absolutely. There's not a shadow of doubt that God is consumed for His own praise to the point He demands it of every one of us. But I have to ask, is God consumed with loving me passionately as well as He is consumed with His own glory? The answer to that is absolutely yes, He is. How do we know that? How do we know that He is consumed with loving me passionately as much as He is consumed with giving glory unto Himself through His people? Well, the way that we know that is that God gives the greatest gifts that He has to people. The gift of His very self. That's the unpacking of the process. God gives the greatest gift that He can to people from either side of the world or either side of the tracks. The greatest gift of Himself. And as He gives of Himself, we now have something that we can give back based on what it is that He has done for us. How passionate is God in revealing Himself to us for His own glory and for our own good? How passionate is He? Well, this passage says that He was wearied from it. He is so passionate about revealing Himself and setting His love on people that He is wearied from it in this passion. The Greek word is defined as a beating or a weariness. He's beat. Christ is beat. He's tired. He's worn out. Is He human? Absolutely. <laughs> but let's remember this. The chief reason that He's wearied at this, at this moment is for the sake of a woman. Is He wearied? Absolutely. But He is wearied because His journey has demanded that He has to pass through Samaria in order to set His love on this woman so that she will offer Him praise. So that she will be given the greatest gift that she could ever receive so that she will have something to praise Him for. Now, that sounds nice. It sounds fluffy. But how possible is it? Well, 
I think we need to talk about the role of the Spirit in worship as we talk about the possibility of spiritual sight. The possibility of spiritual sight. Let's look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you satisfy me. You would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. The Greek word knew, or the word knew that comes from a Greek word, it means to see, to perceive with the eyes. It means to be able to turn the eyes in order to be able to see. I believe the disciples were extremely thrilled in Matthew 13, 16, and 17 when Jesus said, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The reason that they would be thrilled do you know that Christianity is based on the need to see? Christianity, our Christian life, is based upon the need to be able to perceive. This woman is living in a gap. There is a gap that exists between who she is, how she lives, who she loves, how she loves, what she considers to be worship, and what true worship really is. And that gap exists because she is plagued with the reality of sin, which means there is a lack of perception. There is a lack of awareness. There is a lack in her ability to see. To see what? To see the worth of Christ. If you only knew who it was that was sitting before you, you would have asked this. She cannot see the worth of Christ. So what does it mean to worship God? The word worship means worth-ship. So worship is therefore my response to God based on my perception of the worth of God. The Greek word for worship means to prostrate oneself. It means to fall down before or to bow down before. Now, I want to remind you that worship is a lifestyle. So when we talk about bowing down or falling down, we're talking about the bowing down of our very lives. In Revelation 4, 10, and 11, we read the following. The 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. We are confronted with the proper order of true worship and it begins with us falling down before Him. Falling down before Him as a to to mean this is the submission of my life. Falling down to symbolize I'm submitting myself to you because you are the one that is worthy. But I want to suggest that she will only bow down her life. We will only bow down our life when two truths become extremely apparent. The first truth is 
the worth of Christ. And the second truth that we have to be able to perceive and see is our own personal unworthiness. And I want to assure you that the coin of redemption has to be stamped with both of those impressions. I'll tell you what it may look like. Now, we may be tempted at this point, especially if we're of more reformed thinking, we may be tempted to back off a little bit. Say, hey, wait a minute, that's the Holy Spirit's job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to reveal those things. I don't play a role in that. I want to suggest otherwise. When we owned our business in Franklin, West Virginia, we had a a young girl that worked for us of a very similar reputation as the woman that we're reading about today. She was bright, very bright, very intelligent. She was pretty, but yet she was scarred. She was scarred from her past life. She was scarred from her present life along with the literal whispers and pointings from the community. There she is. There's the one who. At one point, she got herself in such a tight spot that she became homeless. And so we brought her into our home for a couple of weeks. So so obviously there was a little bit of trust there to where we would offer to bring her in her home and she would accept. And, and let me suggest... That's really where this whole thing starts. This whole thing about people, yeah, it is the Holy Spirit's job. But sometimes the Holy Spirit fulfills His role through the voice of people. And this is where it all starts. Notice that it's one thing for us to say, hey, come on in, we welcome this type of people. Yeah, we welcome We welcome that caliber of person into our midst. It's a completely whole different thing to see them and to seek them where they are, which is exactly what Christ did. And it begins with developing that that air of trust. You know what? I see who you are. I know who you are. You can't hide a thing from me. But I want you to know that I value you where you are. We'll let Christ do the work but I value you. I don't condemn you. I don't judge you. I value you. One night, we're gathered around and we're talking about the gospel. That's when you can share the gospel with someone, when you've cultivated trust. When they know you're not going to judge them for who they are. You can can begin to share the gospel. We're talking about the gospel. And she says, you know what? I I believe in God, but I don't necessarily believe in Jesus. Now, what I mean by that is, I don't believe that he was the son of God that came to die on a cross for our sins. I believe he was probably a good man. I believe he existed. I believe he was a good teacher. But I don't necessarily believe that he came as a substitution to die for my sin. Now, there's something that she was saying, and she may have said it without thinking this all the way through. But what she was saying in essence was, I will never be anything more than what I am right now. Because she did not have a trust in the worth of Christ. I believe it's at this point that we need to issue a warning. Do not, do not distort or pervert God's perspective of what true love is. Be aware of the goal of God's love. Be aware of the method of God's love. 
The goal of God's love is always that it would attach itself to the heart of a person and infect them to the point that they would live a bowed down life. And the method of God's love is always truth. Now, we may have to gain trust in order to speak truth, but if we think that we're being a friend to a sinner by not confronting their lifestyle and hiding truth, I want to tell you right now, we're greatly mistaken. Greatly mistaken. She had to be confronted. This girl that was in our home, she had to be confronted with those two truths. She had to see through the Holy Spirit first her unworthiness because her unworthiness is what would lead her and you and me and any other person that we come in contact with and awareness of our unworthiness leads us to repentance. And awareness of His worth leads us to belief. John the Baptist said, I believe it was in Mark chapter 3. Okay, here it is. Here's what we have to do. Repent and believe. We have to be confronted with our unworthiness to know that there is the need to repent. And we have to be confronted with the worth of who God is in order to know that there's something that we can believe in that supersedes our sin. That's the role that we play in part. That's our aid to the Holy Spirit. He does the work, but we're the voice that He does the work through at times. But I, I do strongly encourage, gain trust. There is nothing... And we had this conversation, Josiah and I, last week. There is nothing more repulsive than a Christian who wears the gospel on their sleeve to the point of getting in someone's face without knowing them, without knowing who they are, and immediately trying to shove the gospel down their throat in the sense of, you need to change. That's not what Jesus did. He approached her where she was. But those two truths have to be in line. We continued to talk to her. We continued to... The only response that I had when she said that was, listen, Justine, if you're sitting here saying that you believe in God, then you have to believe... It's the only thing I knew to say. You might have a very more profound and theological answer, but here was mine. If you're saying that you believe in God, then you have to believe in what God says about His Son. Because if you're saying you believe in God, yet you don't believe in what God is saying about His Son, then even your perspective of God is a little bit twisted. And it opened the door to simply share the gospel. Listen, this is what God says about you where you are. You are a sinner. And this is what God said as to why He sent Him on your behalf to die in the place of your sin. Those two truths have to be revealed by the Holy Spirit. And we can be a voice in that. I want to encourage us to be a voice in that. Iris Blue was born in Houston, Texas. At a very young age, she became addicted to drugs. She became involved in prostitution. And at the age of 17, she went to prison for seven years. After her release from prison, she immediately returned to a life of drugs and became addicted to heroin returned to a life of prostitution, and had several abortions. One day, an old acquaintance of hers called her up. She said, listen, I can't come and see you anymore. But I want you to know something. I want you to know that God loves you. I want you to know that God's changed my life. 
And I want you to know that God can change your life as well. She hung up on him. He called back. She hung up on him. He called back. She hung up on him. He calls her and says, listen, I want you to meet me. Certain location. She meets him. They're talking and he says, listen, this is how God's changed my life and I want you to know I cannot allow a prostitute to influence my life anymore. I'm going to let her take over from here. She says this. When he called me a prostitute, I wanted her words. I wanted to cut his throat. I thought, all this week you've been calling me and telling me how precious I am to God. All week you've been calling me and telling me that I'm valuable. And now in one word, you're telling me I'm garbage. But before I could strike back, he finished his sentence. But God can take a prostitute and turn her into a lady. That's what I've learned. When he said the word lady, it was like something just exploded inside of me. And I thought, all I've ever wanted to be was a lady. It's all the woman at the well wants to be is a lady. It's all the woman that we brought into our home wants to be is a lady. Very small goal in relation to what Christ wants. Christ doesn't want them to just be ladies. Christ wants them to be true worshipers, bowed down lives. He goes on, he said, you see, Iris, it's really like a marriage in the sense that it is a commitment of your whole life to Him. Christ gets every aspect of your life. Are you ready for that? I said, I'm ready. We knelt there on the sidewalk. Nobody was playing just as I am. But it was like I could feel the music on my knees. He said, pray with me. He took my hand. We prayed and it was like God pulled back a curtain on my heart. And on March 31st, out in front of an old bar, I knelt down a prostitute, a loser, and a zero, and I stood up a lady. Clean, pure, forgiven, innocent, blameless, cherished, brand new. My life is different. She's now married, has children, is engaged in full-time ministry. Similar story of Kay Arthur. She was married at a young age. Her husband was greatly depressed, struggled with depression, called her up one day and said, I'm going to kill myself. She says, go ahead, I need the insurance money. And he did. She's engaged in relationship after relationship after relationship. Man after man after man was engaged in a two-year affair with a married man. And a friend who had gained her trust came to her and said, listen, this is the reality of the Gospel. You're a sinner and you need God in your life. And she says of herself, I knelt down a harlot and I rose up a saint confronted with her unworthiness and the worth of God. That is what Christ is doing as He confronts this woman where she is. As He makes His way to her without judging her, He yet tears open that wound 
that she has, that she's been carrying around, that she's been trying to conceal all of her life. He rips that apart. Richard Baxter gets it right when he says, other things may be the worst for breaking, yet a heart is never at the best till it be broken. Go call your husband. Every trip to the well was a bitter reminder of her lifestyle of her sin. In the cool of the morning when the other ladies in the community went to the well to draw water and to socialize and to talk about their day and their plans, this woman could only look on from a distance. And yet Christ comes along and He takes this blade of truth and He pushes it deeper still into her very soul. No, that's right. You don't have, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and the man that you're sleeping with right now, he's not one of them. And that truth just rips open the reality of who she is. We have to know that we're sinners. The reality is the conscience and the heart of a person has to be confronted with the truth before the conscience and the heart of a person can become clean. Christ intentionally opens and thoroughly investigates the wound in her very soul that causes her to withdraw from everybody that's around her and He does it so that she will become not just saved, but a true worshiper. Now the question is, how does all of this apply to us? Because reality is this. Many of us, probably most of us, can't really identify with the specifics of this woman. Maybe some of us can. Most of us cannot identify with the reality of having to avoid people because the news is out about us. They know who I really am. So let's talk about what it is that we can identify with. Maybe we have not walked in her shoes, but I want to assure you that most of us have been on and off her rutted path to a degree. Now, let me tell you what that means, I think. What it means for me. (laughs) The history of my life. I'll speak for myself if necessary. I think what that means for many of us is that we have spent so much time working on an edited version of our lives, haven't we? We have, in an attempt to present to the world, but more sadly, in an attempt to present to the church, in an attempt to present to each other a version of our lives that seems polished and edited for viewing, we keep our mistakes, we keep our imperfections, and we keep our sins completely to ourselves, and we are the far worse... We are far far more worse because of it. I want to assure you of that. As a matter of fact, I would say that that could be one of the plagues that we're confronted with right now in Providence Bible Church. We look at other men, we look at other women, we look at other marriages, and we say, man, I want to be like him. Or she says, man, I wish I had it together like her. Or we say, man, I wish that our marriage was just like their marriage. And the reality is that can come from a couple of things. Reality is we don't know each other that well. 
because if we knew each other that well, <laughs> we wouldn't be saying those things because we each have our own sets of issues. And we can say that that's the case for us because we don't know each other that well, but there's another reality too. We don't know each other that well because there's a fear of exposing ourselves when we get to know each other that well. And you know what the consequence of that is? I believe we feel very miserable and ultimately alone in this thing that we call church life. This woman, she's very detached from her community. And we can say, well, it's because she's always shunned. Maybe. It's definitely part of it. But I think there's a flip side as well. I think she's detached from her community because she's continually hiding the reality of who she is. Is there just one woman that gathers at that well every morning that she could confide in that would look at her and know there's trust? I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to condemn you. Maybe there is, but she'll never know. She'll never know because she will never expose herself. She will never say, this is who I am deep down inside. And I just want you to know this about me. Now, can't we just go to God and confess and be done with it? I was having a conversation with someone yesterday and they said, you know what? I don't have to confess my sins to anybody else. I can confess my sins to God. And absolutely, this isn't a salvation. Our salvation isn't hinging on whether or not we confess to people. Can I confess to God and be forgiven and my, my relationship with Him be restored and renewed? Absolutely. But James talks about the value of church life for a reason. For the sake of healing. For the sake of being prayerful. Prayerful for one another. For the sake of being covered by one another. For the sake of accountability, I do think we need to greatly consider the beauty of this thing called church life. James says in 5.16, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Two winters ago, Jason and I started a class for men on sexual purity at Giuseppe's Restaurant. We met on Monday mornings at 6 a.m., and it was a beast that was cold, but we were faithful. We were faithful because men were faithful. And can I tell you one of the most refreshing things about that meeting time? One of the most refreshing things about that meeting time was seeing men, young men, walk into this room feeling a little bit weighed down and burdened down with guilt, longing to say to a to another group of men, man, I did this this week. Man, I failed this week. And you could see almost literally the sense of relief that just was the weight of the world being lifted off of their shoulders. Now, did they confess their sin to God? Absolutely. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. They repented and they were remorseful before a holy God. But there was something that was so refreshing to be able to be in an environment where there's no condemnation and no judgment and be able to look at brothers and sisters in Christ and say, listen, I have blown it. I have failed and not be judged. And no, this is a safe place for me to share that. What if the church could be like that? What if the church was designed to be like that? What if that's what God was calling us to? John Piper says, 
Some of you have taken significant risks in this whole area of relationships and are much the better for it today. Others of you are hurting yourselves and the cause of God by bottling up something that someone should know about. Maybe it's some grudge or some failure, some habit or some remorse. May the Lord give us the wisdom to know the difference between an unhealthy indulgence and self-exposure on the one hand and the biblical risk of authenticity and confession on the other. What if we trusted the role of the Holy Spirit to reveal the worth of Christ to us still? Because if I recognize that the worth of Christ is greater than my sin, I will most certainly recognize that the worth of Christ is greater than your sin. And therefore, the Bible verse that says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's no longer just a nice, pleasant, poetic Bible verse. It's the way we live among each other. It's the way we function. We're not talking about a lack of discipline. We are talking about a void, a detachment from condemnation. What if we trusted the Holy Spirit to do that? What if we approached the other one instead of waiting on the other one to come to us? What if we trusted the role of the Holy Spirit to reveal to us and cause us to relax in the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church where the stronger members edify and protect the weaker members. Stronger members are silent out of fear that they're going to come across as being judgmental. The weaker members are silent out of fear of being judged. So what if we trusted the Holy Spirit to break down those barriers? Why? Because God calls us to worship as a lifestyle, not just in this context. I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me, please. I want to read a quote to you from A.W. Tozer. He says, Man was made to worship God. God gave to man a harp and said, Here, above all the creatures I have made and created, I have given you the biggest harp. I have put more strings on your instrument and I have given you a wider range than I have given to any other creature. You can worship me in a manner that no other creature can. And when he sinned, man took that instrument and threw it down in the mud and it has lain there for centuries, rusted, broken, and unstrung. And man, instead of playing a harp like the angels and seeking to worship God in all of God's activities, is ego-centered and turns in on himself and sulks and swears and sings and laughs. But it is all without joy 
because it is all without worship. Worship is the missing joy in modern evangelicalism. Yes, we're organized. We work. We have our agendas. But we are not cultivating the art of worship. It is the one shining gem that is lost to the modern church. And I believe that we ought to search for it until we find it. I want to make a suggestion in closing, beloved. We search for that gem in the lives of other people. Father, we come to You this morning. And God, if we are blatantly and brutally honest before You and before others, God, we are broken in our own ways. Father, would You... Through Your Spirit, enable us, equip us, convict us. God, help us to see the value of why we are even here this morning. Father, allow us to move beyond the short-term goal of this very morning, Lord, and enable us to look into the quality of our very lives and the lives of our children. We don't know each other because we're hiding from one another. We're we're reserved from one another because we have misconceptions of one another. Lord, I guess we're just asking for You to do through Your very Spirit, the thing that we can't. On our own, help us to love each other. God, help us to trust each other. Help us to be open with each other. Help us to initiate with the other person. And be vulnerable. Yes, Lord, let us be very discerning. But God, let us experience the joy of church life while we're here. Help us to do that for Your glory. We would ask that in Jesus' name.